the faith, the state of faith that I found most attractive is not a faith of exclamation marks. It's a faith of question marks. Mm. It's a faith of seeking, mm. constant seeking. And this is the mystical enterprise. This is the most, I believe, essential element of religious existence. And without it, religion is very limited. We are here with Rabbi Dr. Shagabaran, and I'm very glad that we are, because we've been having these wonderful conversations here with the very fine scholars of Jewish mysticism here at the Shalom Harman Institute in Jerusalem. But I feel like there's one big chapter missing in our story of Jewish mysticism. You know, when people tell the, the history of Western philosophy, they begin with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then maybe it's Augustine, Aquinas, <laughs> maybe Maimonides, and then it's Descartes. Mm -hmm. And from Descartes, it's Hume and Spinoza and Berkeley, and nothing ever happened in between. Uh -huh. And when we tell the story of Jewish mysticism, there's like a bit of Hechalot mysticism and Merkava mysticism, and boom, then we're off to the races in the 12th, 13th century, Kabbalah, very exciting. But we're skipping hundreds of years of Jewish texts and learning and life and, and wisdom. And I think one very big chunk that's missing is the mysticism of Chazal, of the rabbis, the rabbis of the Talmud and the Mishnah, and Rabbi Baron, Rabbi Dr. Baron. That is a field which I understand you've specialized in. And I hope today we can try unpack the mysticism of Chazal, the mysticism of the rabbis. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Zevi. And I appreciate that you meant this tendency to avoid uh, looking at classical Judaism as part of the mystical quest. I appreciate that you don't avoid looking at the great corpuses of the Chazal writings and scrutinize them and dedicate a chapter to analyze and uh, really delve into the spiritual and mystical, non-rational elements and tendencies within this great literature of our ancient rabbis. I think it's a, a fascinating moment in Jewish history and Jewish mysticism, which is often overlooked. Right. It's often uh, neglected because of the legal element of it, because of this tendency to portray the sages as school of rationalist thought. Uh, but when you look deep into it, when you dwell into the writing of the rabbis, you very clearly see first these tendencies that experience religion and not just thinking about religion. Right. And for me, this is the basic uh, element of where mysticism starts, yes. right? When you want to connect with God, when you imagine God, when you feel God, when you look with wonder about reality and you see the touch of God or the in the disappearance of mm. God, right? When you are in this quest mm. in the midst of the mist. And both and that's both the presence and the absence of God. Exactly. And you see that as as a phenomenon that's present amongst the rabbis of the Mishnah and the Talmud, amongst Chazal? Yeah, very much. And you basically see different circles within the rabbinic literature. I'm not denying that all the rabbinic literature is different, very different from Second Temple, very hyper mystic writing in certain schools. There are schools that are more mystical in the Second Temple period, while 
let's take the Hanochic uh, literature that is very much focusing on ascending to heaven, seeing a lot of different visions, praying in, in a very pure atmosphere with the angels. Right. If you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, to, I believe, literature that was connected to the temple itself mm. in Jerusalem. I and others, of course. But the sages did avoid this, although they reduced the level and the energy of the... Um, the mystical impulse the mystical and this mystical impulse that uh, was characterized by uh, that uh, that characterized those sects the other second temple mm -hmm. and they created a more what max kadushin calls a more normative or normal mysticism they kept praying but they didn't look for the ascetic experience while praying hmm. they observed all the commandments including those purifications uh, co uh, commandment the commandment which deals with purity they used to bath Allah they even after the destruction of the temple all the people took upon themselves to observe those rules of purity and the uh, impurity and so they created a circle of sages that basically acted like priests and they were very much uh, concerned with the question of purity hmm. but they democratized it they see themselves as part of the people as a whole. Fascinating. They took the festivals, the Yom Kippur ceremony, for instance, and instead of just uh, attributing those mystical elements to the high priest going in and going out, they described the, this atmosphere of elevation and described it to all the people hmm. of Israel. Hmm. So the climax, for example, of the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the experience of those people who stand outside of the temple. Hmm. And they, when they heard the, the call of the high priest, calling the hidden name, the name of God, they bow and uh, were very excited mm. with him. While he was inside, they just waited with a lot of tension outside to see him coming and uh, closing to him after. So it's a, it's a normalized form of mysticism. It's a democratized form of mysticism. It's a mysticism which is part of the community, part of everyday life right. in that sense. Right. And another huge innovation of the sages was the alternation of the medium of the what of the medium the medium okay the medium changed okay instead of concentrating on hearing god's voice they concentrated on learning torah hmm. and they realized the presence of god the raise the presence of the holy hmm. the holiness from the torah and hmm. their interpersonal experiences through Torah learning. Right, right. That's a huge transition. I mean, the famous Talmudic discussion of the transition from the prophet, the sage, this is, so you're saying that that transition is part of a, a mystical development in some sense. Exactly. It's not a denial of the mysticism. It's another development, another stage of the mere mystical experience itself. Fascinating. Fascinating. I know and that then you then they describe sages learning the Torah and the world change. 
and experiencing those miracles uh, atmosphere of the Sinai revelation. Mm. Mm. But when a sage is sitting with the Torah and the angels are going down and hear what he has to say, birds were flying above him just drop dead because right. Right. of the huge energy right. that comes out from the Torah learning. And it can be the everyday Torah, not just those Torah, this Torah of revelation, right? Every word, word in the Torah become, uh, becomes a full revelatory experience for this sake. Fascinating. So this transition from the direct prophetic voice of God to the word of God in the text is not one which is being neutered and made weakened and lost its power. There's still there's still a this rapture and fire and there's still an incredible mystical energy in the text itself. Exactly. They change the medium. And on the other side, yeah, it cuts both ways. On the other side. The revelation itself, the immediate relation with God becomes, changes from a sign of excellence to a sign of heresy. Hmm. Hmm. So, so revelation goes from being piety to heresy, and the text goes from being something which is just the, the record of the word of God to, to the actual locus the actual source of the divine revelation the actual voice of god in the world wow incredible right. incredible i know that part of part of the problem that when we overlook uh chazal we overlook the rabbis is not just that we overlook them but even when we discuss them we lump them all into one category right. as if they were all one person with one mind and they didn't disagree and they had kind of yeah maybe small disagreements but on the big things they all mm -hmm. had the same opinion um, and you and I know that that's very far from the truth. Exactly. And you've done some really fantastic work on trying to tease out different camps within the world of Chazal that had very different approaches towards this question of revelation and of the mystical. Exactly. I described one reading of one school within Chazal that strived to keep this energy of the mystic. But we can discern three camps, three circles in among the sages, because the sages constitute a culture of dispute. This is the most fundamental characteristic of the uh, literature of Chazal, of, uh, of our sages. A culture of dispute. Right. I like that. <laughs> and this culture of dispute constitute of, uh, is constituted of three different circles. One circle that ended up with formulating the most important writing of the Tanaitic uh, era, which is the Mishnah, is actually a more rationalistic school headed by Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi Yehuda the Patriarch, who was, as Gershom Sholem uh, already demonstrated, a more rationalistic uh, figure. It's very interesting that later on, he himself becomes a kind of an ascetic and uh, holy a character in, that in, in like the in, imagination of later Kabbalists and mystics in later not only in later Kabbalistics but already in later Chaz sages ah. Chazalistic uh, writers they're rereading him as they a re mystical figure they reread him he was an affluent leader a, a great legalist the editor of the Mishnah and they attributed to him the the title holy right Rabbi Yehuda Kadosh. Rabbi Yehuda Kadosh. Right. and they describe this holiness of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi in different ways that maybe sometimes we'll talk, sometime we'll talk about him as well but he is is the head of this more rationalistic circle and when you see the Mishnah 
you see that it takes a lot of mystical elements and rituals and actually rationalize them. Hmm. For example, in Tractat Brachot, it takes prayer mm -hmm. and it takes some Chaza mystic sages like Hanina Ben Tradion, who was a great mystic, who, according to the Mishnah, the Mishnah of Rabbi Udanasi, he knew how to pray for the ill, and if his pray was successful, he knew that this guy would recover. Hmm. But Rabbi Udanasi takes this mystical figure and learned from it some details about the everyday prayer hmm. of an everyday Jew, hmm. right? So this is one circle, the circle of the Mishnah. If you just read the Mishnah, you can be convinced that the revelation of the sages was a, an attempt to rationalize the mystic spirit of Judaism. Hmm. But if you don't just read the Mishnah, <laughs> but you go to other uh, circles, you see one hyper-mystic school among the sages, which was led by another great figure of the post-destruction of the... or during the late uh, years of the of the of the second temple and the post destruction was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Hmm. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was a mystical hero. Hmm. And if you go from to this mystical collection, right? If you open the Mishnah in Tractat Chagiga, chapter two, you see in the Mishnah this school of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, that enacting that you are prohibited of teaching three students the corpus of Arayot, of sex prohibition. Then you are prohibited of teaching, from teaching even two, the creation story. The secrets of creation. The the creation, the creation story, story. The, the paragraph, right? There is, you read it, uh, but you are not allowed to teach it. Okay. It doesn't mention if you, you just endorshim. Mm -hmm. You cannot unpack this chapter. Of course, the end of this Mishnah, you cannot relate to this content, right? Endorshim, mm you cannot. So there are two prohibitions, one of teaching the passage, the other of teaching the content. Ah, interesting. Right? And then a third prohibition is to teach the corpus of the chariot. Maase Merkava. Maase Merkava are the chapters in Ezekiel, maybe in, in Isaiah, maybe some of Songs of, uh, Song of Songs mm. in Shira Shirim. Those are a, a, a sens censored chapters in the Bible, wow. right? So there is a recognition that the Bible contains mysticism, right. but you are not allowed to teach it. On the account of Rabbi Udanasi, On the, the account of Rabbi Udanasi. And right. there, then, there is a very interesting shift, right? At the end of the prohibition, there is a reservation clause that says, unless your student is wise and understand from his own. And I believe this reservation comes from another source. Mm. It wasn't there originally. Mm. Originally, Rabbi Yehudan Asi Ben unpacking the chariot chapters, unpacking Ben relating to the question of what is God? How can we relate to it? Mm. And then another guy couldn't stand it. And we find this other guy in the Tosefta, mm. in the equivalent 
to what we see in Rabbi Yehuda Nasi Mishnah, hmm. we see in the Tosefta an explanation. Yes, you cannot teach three, but you can teach two. You cannot teach two, but hmm. you can teach one. Hmm. You cannot teach one unless <laughs> he is wise and he understands by his own power the secrets of Avaya, the secrets of God, God himself. Existence. It's almost like there's a, like a mystery here in the text and you're doing this detective work to look at the parts of the text that didn't make it in and those that did and together to exactly. piece together. It's really, it's very, it's very dramatic and very exciting. Exactly. And then when you go to this Tosefta, there you find Rabbi Yohan, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, according to the sages tradition, another patriarch mm -hmm. that as student, who shared with his rabbi, with Rabbi Yochanan, his name is Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, and they celebrated the mystical achievement. Hmm. And then in the Talmuds, in the Babylonian Talmud, in the Jerusalem Talmud, then you find an expansion of this tradition that says, yes, the students of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai taught the chariot. Mm. And then not only that they uh, gained a spiritual achievement, but the angels came down to listen to them, wow. to learn from them. And they were surrounded by the fire that is exemplified uh, attribution, right? A hint for the Mount Sinai uh, covenant. And they hear, heard the voice or Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, who wasn't with two of his other students learning the chariot chapters. He heard the voice from heaven inviting them to join the angels mm. in heaven and to praise the Lord in the middle of the night or in the night before the sunrise. Right. All very non-rationalistic. <laughs> For sure, non-rationalistic <laughs> right. right. at all. Right. right. It's um it's really it's really incredible. Just just very briefly, what is the Tosefta for those that don't know? The Tosefta is another composition of the Tanaitic era mm -hmm. that is equivalent to the Mishnah. Mm -hmm. And same materials from the same era mm -hmm. that are ordinate uh, edited along with the Mishnah. So they relate. If the Mishnah brings one topic, the equivalents are, will appear in the Tosefta. When you see that it is not just a Tosefet, it's not just an addition, but it, but it is another material that can contradict mm. what appears in the Mishnah. Right. So the, some of the secrets, some of the detective uh, work that we are doing comes from those uh, From this Tosefta corpus. Right. So you're seeing multiple hands here involved in this very complex, centuries-long editorial process right. and, and piecing together the pieces. So, so far, if I'm following this, this incredible story, we have, we have Rabbi Huda Hanasi, also sometimes depicted as Rabbi Huda the, the prince or the patriarch, um, also sometimes called Rabbi Huda HaKadosh, right? He's, he's sort of made into a saint a bit later, but but you're saying that he is really the paradigm of the rationalist, legalistic, the more, rationalist. The more rationalist rabbinic mind. And uh, and he's putting down the prohibitions against exploring uh -huh. the secrets that we're finding in the biblical text. And then other characters like Rabbi Yochan ben Zakai, the person responsible for the reestablishment of the rabbinic uh, academy proceeded in, in Yavna, who preceded Rabbi Huda Nasi, uh -huh. right? who you're saying rep personifies this, this mystical, he's the one that's, the angels are coming to listen to him, the angels are inviting him in. Or to his students even. Right, right even his students, so his school that he, that he sets up. Uh, the invitation to, to praise with the angels in Second Temple literature is a very typical mystical archetype, the sense of uh, apotheosis, of becoming angelic, transcending the human form. Exactly. Right. Who's, who's the third camp that you're, that, that makes the, who's the, the mystery figure in the story here? Yeah, so the third camp, I believe, is a great, uh, or maybe the greatest sage of the Tanaitic period, Rabbi Akiva. Hmm. Rabbi Akiva 
in those sources. You know, in the Halot is a hypermystic. In some chapters of the Tosefta, he may appear as very enthusiastic mystic. In generally speaking, in this early rabbinic literature, I see Rabbi Akiva as a representative of or the head of this moderate mystical school hmm. that stands in the middle between Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Yudanasi. Of course, he was one of the great teachers of uh, Rabbi Yudanasi, of Rabbi Yudanasi school. He is a great figure, undeniable figure, and we don't know a lot about his historical character. So I'm not completely relate to him as the historical Rabbi Akiva. I'm mm. talking about this school, mm. right? This allowed uh, schools of attributed to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, attributed to right. Rabbi Yudha right. right. I think here it's more historically and Rabbi Akiva who represents by, I believe, later sages who say, yes, we have a hero. If Rabbi Udanasi prohibited engaging with the mystical enterprise, we are reviving this mystical quest. How can we do it? We do it by introducing a figure who did it right. Hmm. Who is it? Is the great sage, is the teacher of Rabbi Udan, the patriarch, is Rabbi Akiva. Hmm. Is this the normal mysticism that you were talking about before? Yeah. I believe that Rabbi Akiva represent a kind of a normal mysticism. That, for example, the Toset Tsefta, this corpus in Tractat Brachot, tells about the way Rabbi Akiva prayed. Hmm. And then it differentiates. When Rabbi Akiva prayed in the synagogue with the public, he played like each and every one of us. But when you looked at him in his own house, he has started the, his prayer on one corner of the room and you have found him in, in the end in another corner because he bowed and stand and uh, was so energized by the prayer and uh, prayed with in an ecstatic, way that is more typical, of course, to mystics mm. from then to now right. in all religions. Right. So this this ecstatic this ecstatic form of prayer that he starts on one side of the room, ends up on the other, and not because he walked over, for sure, right? no. because uh, he's. It, it's interesting that the very same description is also used later, hundreds of years later, even even close to two thousand years later, in the Hasidic movement right. of Hasidic sages that would begin on one side of the room. And they would be in such ecstasy, they would lose control of their body. They would end up, Anushner Zaman of the Adi is described in a similar right. way. It's a very right. interesting. That, and all of them follow, basically, this paradigm of Rabbi Akiva, according to this satanic passage. Because Admor uh, Zaken, from Ladi, he didn't pray like that in the synagogue. Right, in right, the Beit right, right. He prayed like that in this manner when he was alone. In privacy. In privacy hmm. with his God. Right, 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 right. And then when you take it even more seriously, there is a great Midrash that says on the on a verse that claims that, that obligate no one to enter with the high priest into the temple on Yom Kippurim. Okay. And this Midrash attributed Adam to the high priest himself. Mm. So he himself transforms to an angelic entity or even a godish entity mm. during this prayer. Those who imitate the high priest like Rabbi Akiva, those who imitate Rabbi Akiva like the great Hasidics of the Hasidic movement, they transfer. And you see here a great transformation 
of the ideal of dvekut, of, uh, how do you say? A union with God. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> cleaving to God. Cleaving to God. It's really, it's really wild stuff, this, this notion of the, the human desire and capacity to, to eradicate the self, annihilate the self, transform the self into something that's superhuman, that you know, transcends the boundaries, that, that bridges the gap between the human and God. I think that there's maybe one passage in Chazal that most encapsulates this whole discussion that we've been having here that puts all these characters into conversation and relationship with one into another. Into one story. Into one story. You know what, you know what I'm talking about, right? For sure. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a bit about the, the great, great mystical passage, the Arbish Nechmusul Pardes, the four that enter paradise, the orchard, and, and show us how these schools are coming together in that story and what, what is the point of the story? How is it being written? What is it teaching us? Because I think, I think maybe this is really the climax of, of this whole saga. Right. This appears also in this mystical collection, at the heart of this mystical collection in the Ktosefta, in that corpus that we have discussed. And this is the story about four figures who entered the Pardes. Many scholars have said, demonstrate, that the names were added later word. But what the story that we have in front of us tells about four great sages, Ben Zoma, Ben Azai, Rabbi Akiva, and Acher, Elisha Ben Avuya. We see here figures that are entering this orchard, and we don't really know what this orchard is from just focusing on Chazal literature. Right. But, and there were some more rationalistic uh, scholars that want to protect the idea that an orchard is an orchard, and this is only a parable that has some takeaway, some moral in it. But when you open the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see that the orchard is a name for the ascendance to the eye. When you open the New Testament, you see that Paul was taken to the third realm, to the orchard. Hmm. So, I believe we have to read this passage according, and of course I'm not the only one, I, all the scholars who found mysticism in Chazal literature, read this passage according to the knowledge that we know of in the environment of the Second Temple period uh, literature and uh, afterward. And here you see those four figures, three of them are severely damaged. And according to, the, to this passage, three of those four sages have looked or entered or gazed into the orchard, right? This is the, the title. The introduction is four entered the orchard, the orchard. But when you read it in details, you see that for three of them, it's written, Echad, it's Venifga, Asheni itzitz vamet, Ashlishi kitzetz banetiot. So three or one gazed into the orchard. So he only looked into the orchard and he was, he went out of his mind. Mm. The other gazed into the orchard and was dropped dead. Mm. The third, Elisha Ben Avoya, became hurt the orchard itself. He cut the branches of the orchard. Mm. And only for Rabbi Akiva, it's written in a very different way. There are 
different uh, transcriptions for, for that, different versions for, for this story. So we see there is... What does that mean, translate? By Akiva? Rabbi Akiva ascended in peace and descended in, in peace. So, or entered in peace and went out in peace. So we see a difference between those three figures at the beginning and Rabbi Akiva. Pretty serious difference. Yeah, in, in the description itself, right? In mm. the wording of, mm. in, in just portraying what they did. Uh, the activity which they, which the they activity how they were, engage with, right. the, with the orchard. So the first gazed, right. Rabbi Akiva entered. Right. We, of course, have to assume that Elisha ben Avuya also entered because he cut the branches. Right. Okay. But the first three are a very negative uh, are very negative figures. This uh, their uh, act portrayed as a very negative uh, occupation. I believe that at the beginning there was there was only a story about three who entered the orchard. Okay. Ben Zoma, Ben Azai, and Elisha. Or one, one, and one, a kind of a typology of only three. Hmm. What is the takeaway? Exactly as the Mishnah. You are not allowed. Hmm. Either you are gonna hurt or you're gonna hurt the orchard itself mm. so anyway this is this is not a beloved a beloved quest this is the a type of heresy mm. you should focus on your legal um, the uh, daily uh, commandments you should learn torah you are you should not try to create a direct relation with the eye. You should not try to ascend. Mm. You should avoid, I believe, in origin, it as a temple context. Mm. You should not gaze into the temple. Mm. You should not try to enter the Holy of Holiness mm. and so on and so forth. So this goes very well with the prohibition in the Mishnah, don't deal with it. Right. It's too dangerous. Right. Right. So, so just if I understand, this famous, famous text of the four that enter the orchard, you're saying originally begins, according to your research, as the three that enter the orchard. Yeah. And it's entirely, all the outcomes are bad. Right. You die, you go crazy, you right. become a heretic, and it's purely a cautionary tale. Right. Do not embark on this journey. It's not safe. Exactly. Stay away from it. Exactly. And I admit, this is a speculation. I cannot <laughs> completely prove it. But if you see the difference in the depiction, if you see the, the, the difference in the result, if you uh, see the, the differences in the language, you see that there was a typology of three and one, one and one, right? One who is mentally hurt, one who is physically hurt, and one, this was the epitome of the first version, who caused damage right. to the heavenly realms right and right? and spiritually hurt and right? spiritually hurt as a result right. right he became he becomes the great heretic right. in Hazal uh, literature right. in the babylonian talmud then i believe a chain author right there is a dworkin a ronald dworkin the great uh, legalist and philosopher uh, as a concept of chain novel uh, literature. So I believe there is a chain novel here, right? We start with those three, and then another hand comes, and it cannot, this author cannot bear the idea that you have to give up your mystical quest. And he comes 
with what I believe, and this is even a harsher speculation, another bright eye, another source, who tells another story. I believe also about three figures. Here, it's complete, spe uh, complete speculation, but I can speculate and try to imagine this source. Think about three figures. Three figures, very positive figures, who ascended to heaven, who entered the Pardes. Who will be? Who will them, uh, they be? Chanoch. Chanoch, for example, right? Elijah. Eliah. Eliyahu. And? And Rabbi Akiva. Akiva. So the first Hanoch Allah Shalom and didn't Did come back. Elijah ascended and didn't descend. And Rabbi Akiva? <laughs> Rabbi Akiva Nichnas Bishalom Vietza Bishalom. Rabbi Akiva ascended to high and went back, descend. So when you take those two different stories each a typology of three, and you combine them together, you see that, yes, we preserve this caution, this alert of be careful, but we don't stop, we don't avoid the, the mystical quest completely. Mm -hmm. We have a very positive figure, who? Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage, who? do it right and here you see the story actually held this tension in the way that the Sosefta uh, put it so nicely hmm. and another move you may say okay but i'm not rabbi akiva so maybe if ben zoma is a great sage by his own sake Ben Azai, great sage. Elisha, before ascending and hurting the orchard and getting hurt by himself, he was also one of the greatest sages in the study hall, in the Beit Midrash. So you say, okay, so Rabbi Akiva, only Rabbi Akiva. Hmm. And then the Babylonian Talmud says, Rabbi Akiva warned his friends when you get to a specific place to the marble stones don't say my my don't say water water or don't say another thing that i decode in and in another way maybe we'll have some time to discuss it but so the question the problem is not that they were lower sages than rabbi akiva What's the difference between them? The difference between them that they didn't follow a strict protocol. Hmm. They let the word to say something wrong on high. Hmm. And in a later Midrash, Rabbi Akiva said it very explicitly, attributed, of course, to Rabbi Akiva to say it very explicitly. It's not that I am better than my friends. It's only that I follow the protocol mm. better than them. Mm. And of course, this opens a great door to everyone, or at least to every sage that is strong enough, that, that takes the obligation to follow the protocol rightly and to go in this mystical quest it really transforms the text entirely from a from a absolute prohibitory um cautionary tale to one which really ends on a note of invitation and 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 you're saying now it's not just an invitation for just rabbi akiva but he's saying it's an invitation for anyone who's willing and capable to follow the right protocol and regulation i mean a lot of the mysticism of the second temple period is about knowing when to say the right words right. to the right you know guardian angels exactly. So, literature, right. same thing. so he's what he's saying is that if you if you do know how to do this right, then you can also engage on this journey. It's really a very radical rereading. Right. I see here two schools that actually fight each other. One wants to 
lead us to focus on only the rational, legal, everyday Judaism. The other say, no, you can and you are invited to ascend. But then comes the great, you know, monster, Elisha. How do you read Elisha? What is your what is your reading of this great, the great, great heretic of the Talmud? Right. So he is the great, great heretic of the Talmud, and he was the founding father, if you want, for the Israeli secular identity, mm. right? But I believe that he resembles this scene of engaging with mystical enterprise. This was the beginning of it. Right? He starts by entering the realm that Rabbi Udanasi wanted to block. Hmm. But then the Talmud has different interpretation for what was Elisha's sin. But I believe that the very basic sin of Elisha, which is a puzzle, and I have a a new interpretation for this uh, scene. Elisha is described as one who went to heaven and saw two figures sitting on the throne. One was Hanoch and the other was God. And there is the unique and mysterious caution of Rabbi Akiva saying to his friends, when you go up and you get to these stones of marble, don't say, it's written, Mem Yud Mem, Mem Yud Mem. Most of us read it as Maim Maim. Don't say Maim Maim. And you stand there puzzled, say, what, what does it mean? Don't say Maim Maim. So there are water, 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 water. Right. So there are a lot of interpretations for that. Maybe it's a test for the mystic in high, uh, like King Solomon tested the Queen of Sheba mm. when she came and asked him a lot of questions. You have to know what you see. Mm. Uh, if you violate this uh, you are not entitled to enter maybe you are characterized as someone who say false statements and this is a disaster of course to say false statement and i say this is an anticlimax for this journey ascending to heaven Look, aspiring to gaze at the throne of God himself sitting on this great throne. And I believe that when you take all the evidence the, from this Babylonian passage and from the Chalot uh, literature that have, you have discussed and compare this mystic who say mem mem and my mind Mem Yud Mem, Mem Yud Mem, there at this point, they compare him to the uh, worshippers of the golden calf, mm. right? And you take this warning of Rabbi Akiva. I believe he doesn't say, don't say water, water. It says, don't say Mem Mem. What is Mem Mem? Mem Mem is the letter Mem. What is the letter Mem? This is a code. A code to what? A code to another prohibition appears in Tractat Megillah and in Brachot. Don't say Modim Modim. Aomer Modim Modim Meshatkinoto. If someone goes and become a daven for the public and Shliach Tzibur says, leading, the community, in leading the community in the prayer and say, Modim anachnu lach, instead of saying what he should say the prayer according to the Siddur, Modim anachnu lach, he said, Modim, Modim. You have to silence him. Why should you silence him? And here, if we see this picture that Elisha saw in heaven of two figures, sitting 
on two thrones. Then we see what is the great heresy, violation of the imagination of the second temple and post-destruction Judaism. And, we, and this is two instances in I, binitarism, two powers in heaven. Right. So Elisha actually saw those two figures and he became maybe Gnostic. Hmm. Oh, the Gnostics believe in the creator of the world, the lower world and the Lord of heaven. The maybe, you know, Christian, ancient Christians who believe that beside God, there is another entity. And Elisha, a heretic who believed in two powers in heaven. And this is the caution that says, you should not try to decode what's going up there. And this is the warning of Rabbi Akiva. Don't mislead yourself. There is only one God. This is the true God. This is our God. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Eloheinu, Hashem Echad. And if you will follow this uh, inclination, if you will follow this, uh, those uh, lines, then maybe it's a great idea not just to focus on the Torah, not just to follow, to observe halacha, but to make it very evident that there is one God, the monotheism belief, that will strengthen your loyalty to Judaism. Hmm. While the others were afraid that if you go I, you will see the two powers, you will realize. If you go deep, if you will try to unpack creation, if you will try to speculate how this world works, if you will try to speculate what happens to us in our history, you might end up with a very negative conclusion that there is not only one God, but at least two, one evil one good, one of ours, one of the Romans, one of that we have to worship and the other that maybe is more powerful than our God. This is a really, really fascinating and in many ways creative and original reading of the narrative and of the prohibition. I'm curious to try and unpick this, the intersection between the psychology and the theology in this moment in Chazal. Why is it? It's, and it seems like the some of the authors at play here are trying to, as you said, close off this realm. They, they're, they're aware and afraid of the dangers that lie beyond. Why should a mystic who's on a path on a journey to God, why should they have the, the possibility of encountering two gods or two powers? And, and why is it such a such a strong possibility that the rabbis are warning against that specifically? Right. This is a great question. And we have to remember that we are in a very complicated historical era when those depictions were created. First of all, in the same synagogue where you pray, there are other Jews who pray. This is before the departures of the way between Christianity and Judaism. Hmm. So if you live in Kfar Nahum, for example, by, in the Galilee, by the Kinneret, by the sea, you pray with Jews who say modim modim, hmm. who say modim for the Father, and say modim for the son hmm. or for the messiah you go out of your synagogue and you might tackle heretics 
Gnostics who say, you know who is your God? Your God is the creator of the world. Look at this world. See what happens here. Little children die. Fighters for freedom, for the sake of your kingdom, lost their war. Who made it? Hmm. How is it that you are so low in this chain, right? That your historical position is so low. Hmm. So there is a temptation of thinking about different gods. Then, when you travel the empire, and they travel, and you see all those signs of the Romans, and you see all those gods of the Gentiles, and they are so strong, and they are so tempting. And you know, no, those are just, you know, merely statues. They have no soul. They have no power. But you want to figure out what is there that make them so strong. And then when you ascend to I, you might have a kind of a solution. And according to the Babylonian passage, the Babylonian description tale that describes Elisha ben Avoya, he went high and he see an angel that usually has to be in our side, sitting on the throne and maybe this is an enigma, what is really written there. But maybe he got the mission to write down the deficiencies of Israel and why Israel should be uh, punished. And this is another explanation of why are we, the Jews, so weak. Hmm in those historical terms. Mm. So this is a context that I believe really explains opportunities mm. of why should or could a mystic envision two powers. Mm. And why is it better for great teachers to say, no, there is no prophecy. There are no prophets mm. like Elijah or Hanoch. Mm. And those who claim for prophecy are false prophets mm. like Jesus, mm. right? There are no Messiah. The Messiah will come when God will decide. Mm. And he doesn't sit on eye. Mm. He's just gonna come when it's gonna come you for now have to observe you have to fulfill the commandments you have to learn Torah not to engage with secrets mm. secrets mm. can confuse you and mislead you and you will end like Elisha ben Avuya. right right it's almost like that verse in the Bible that the secrets are for the Lord your God and the revealed aspects are for you and your children for the generations. It's it's a really exquisite journey that you're taking us on here through the texts and through the various versions, and you're speculating about other texts that may have been there. And I can see you've spent obviously an, an immense amount of time with these texts to begin to try and figure out what's going on and, and also painting a very broad cultural, theological, psychological picture of what the, the authors and the readers of these texts may have been encountering. It's a, it's a real challenge to take our mind out of the 21st century and go back into a very different world than us. And what, what, what may have they been encountering? Why may have they been thinking this? What are they warning against? And you're really dealing with many, many cultures and traditions, with many cultures and traditions. Uh, and it's an exquisite journey. And I can see that there's so much work and reading and research you've done here that it must be challenging just to condense this into into sound bites, but, but you're doing a great job and I appreciate it. I want to maybe end the conversation on, on this final point. You've been very gracious with your time. And that is, I want to bring 
we've, we're trying to move away from the 21st century to, to try and think back what's happening in the first, second, third century. And I, I want to now do the opposite direction. I want to ask these texts, they're still important texts for us practicing Jews. They're still sacred texts that teach us wisdom, that teach us divine wisdom. And there's, there's definitely this dispute and this disagreement in this text, as you're saying, this culture of disagreement, mm-hmm. the culture of dispute. And there's two different voices here. One is saying, stay away from the secrets. Don't engage. It's dangerous. It's unsafe. And that's prophets. It's messiahs. It's, it's God. Just stay away. We have the text. It's good. It's clean. Let's just stick to the laws. We'll be ethical people. We don't need anything else. But then there is the, the voice of Rabbi Akiva and, and the redactors who are saying, no, 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 that there is something else to, to engage with here in a safe way. And I'm wondering how you see those two voices playing out in the life of the contemporary, firstly, Jew, who's an inheritor of these texts, but also generally speaking, a person of religion who is looking for ways to, to, to find the balance between the mystical and the mundane, between the esoteric and the ordinary. Wow, wow! While you you describe, you have started your question. I was already thinking about it. You say analyzing, learning, and so on. And I wanted to add also meditating, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Also filling them and the relevance because I completely agree with you. This is an internal Torah, mm-hmm. and now you ask yourself, okay. Should morality and observant be suffice for us? Mm. Is it enough for our experience? And for me, it's not enough. Mm. I believe that religion is about the spiritual element of our life, is about feeling. For me personally, Judaism is still a culture of dispute. And in this culture of dispute, the dispute is not only between me and you, between me and other schools. It's also within oneself. Mm. You have a lot of dimensions of your fuller lives, fuller spiritual life of religiosity. And for me, religion without religiosity is not an option. Mm. I know there is a danger and we should minimize this danger. We should avoid using our spiritual experiences for promoting evil. Morality is a limit condition, is a condition which limits our spiritual quest. Mm -hmm. But the question of the human condition goes far beyond the question of morality. There are intellectual elements, philosophical quests, and we look for the truth. And there are spiritual elements. If you would like non-rational elements, Mm. if you would like mystical Mm. elements that reach our life, that nurture our existence, that elevates us, that allows us to elevate. And those very same questions for me are completely open today as they were mm. for Rabbi Akiva and Elisha Benavoya. Mm. Should I follow our ancient tradition? How can I validate my relationship with God? What spiritual experiences should I gain and should energize me to go back into everyday life and to be active, to be moral? Think about it. There is something non-reasonable of observing morality. There is no pure rational Judaism. You can be a Maimonidian, right? But also Maimonides 
you know, as a mystical reading to his writings because he saw it, the, the great achievements of the rational mystic, if you would like, by focusing day and life and night with the love of the internal God. And he calls it holy ava, the sickness of love, mm. right? Like one who is so, have so much desire. Love sick. Love sick. And for me, the religious, the faith, the state of faith that I found most attractive is not the faith of exclamation marks. It's a faith of question marks. Mm. It's a faith of seeking, mm. constant seeking. Ob completely full obligated to morality on the one end, but not giving up this fundamental desire for engaging the unknowable for engaging with the spiritual quest to be a God-seeker. And this is the mystical enterprise. This is the most, I will believe, essential element of religious existence. And without it, religion is very limited. Mm. That's really beautiful. And without the precautions and the safety and the morality, the mysticism just becomes a form of narcissism and abuse and and thank you very much for adding that. This is so important. Completely agree. Right. The holiness is a combination of these two. The arguments and the cautions are there in the text. You might end up very brutal if you just like Elisha depicted in the Talmud if you just follow your spiritual instincts you can err in a tremendous way we see you know mystics today who are instead of promoting the world they are representative of the evil right sexual uh, use uh, by charismatic figures that we believe or some believe they are spiritual leaders or a holy person. We should avoid all of this. We should be very careful for seeing mysticism just as a cover-up for our own inner desires. Mm. We, but we shouldn't give up the own quest altogether because of the danger. Right. We have to follow the protocol. The protocol say, keep moral and keep searching. The path of Rabbi Akiva. The path of normal, if you want, mysticism. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rabbi Dr. Shagabaran, for sharing with us not only your years of research and scholarship and thoughtfulness, but also your wisdom in this path, because I think it's one which we need today and we need to do it very carefully. And thank you for sharing with us both a inspiring potential and also a cautionary side and, and the capacity and the, perspic the perspicacity to hold them both together. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi Zvi. And thank <laughs> you for having me. My pleasure. And uh, you are doing a great job. Thank, Thank you. you.